This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis, and this is episode 46, closing in on the half century here, not not many to go. Um, And this episode uh, is an interview. So for this episode, I was in conversation with Samir Padania, Now, Samir is a consultant um, and kind of researcher and author who has worked um, in a lot of issues around kind of human rights and civil society for a long time. Um, But he particularly focuses these days on issues around the media and the kind of funding environment for the media and the the role that the media uh, can play um, with regard to civil society. And he's done quite a lot of work looking at the question of kind of philanthropic funding for the media. Um, and this is something I'm really interested in, so I was really keen to get Samir on to have a, a conversation about it. Um, yeah, and we had a good chat, so we discussed, you know, why there seems to have been a trend in recent years for um, both for the media to kind of look to philanthropy as a way of funding itself, and also for philanthropists and foundations to start seeing journalism as something that they want to fund whether that had shifted from kind of thinking about it as an instrumental way of achieving other goals to a kind of goal in itself. Um, We touched on some questions about what the kind of the long-term vision is for philanthropic funding for journalism, whether it's just a temporary way of catalyzing change and getting from A to B, um, or whether it's seen as a sort of long-term solution to some of the challenges of of funding media in the digital age. Um, We touched on some issues around kind of challenges of power and inequality um, between uh, grant makers and funders and those in receipt of the money and particularly in the context of media what that meant for things like editorial independence and whether um, that power dynamic might compromise that editorial independence Um, and we also talked about some changes that might be on the horizon in the UK and elsewhere for instance the proposals in the recent Cairncross review um, in this country to make uh, journalism uh, a charitable um, cause so that it could be more easily funded through philanthropic means so we had a really wide-ranging chat without further ado I'll, I'll go into it um, I should just flag up uh, up front that Samir uh, for various reasons was sitting in a cafe with wi-fi um, to do this interview which was largely because we tried and failed a couple of times to make it work and then we had some technical issues and he very kindly uh, left his home <laughs> and went out to, to a cafe to make this work. Um, so I've done some editing work and hopefully kind of cut out um, and most of the really egregious background noise, but there are some sort of atmospheric clinks of plates and, and bits of burbling chatter at times, but um, I've listened to it through and I think it's absolutely fine. But So hopefully kind of knowing that um, you will too. Um, But anyway, let's get into it, uh, and I will be back at the end of the podcast just to do a little bit of housekeeping. Okay. Okay, great. Well, I'm uh, here. I'm joined by Samir Padania. Hi, Samir. Hello. Hello. Uh, So Samir runs uh, a consultancy called Macroscope um, and works on basically like a whole massive range of things. Um, I mean, what we're here today to talk about is the the kind of nexus between philanthropy and journalism, which is where you and I kind of uh, first met and have have discussed before. But maybe a good starting point is if you sort of explain a bit in your own words, your kind of background and how you come to these issues. I began my career at an NGO called Panos, which... Um, based in London that worked with a sort of network of autonomous sort of sister institutes around the world and um, focused really on the stuff that actually I kind of I still focus on today um, which is journalism and relationship with public debate public interest um, you know panels focused on issues like uh, HIV AIDS trade um, environment those sorts of issues and how they were reported and how public debate was informed and sustained by journalism um, 
in developing countries where media capacity was lower, you know, all sorts of press freedom and other challenges. And so we, we worked on things like sort of online radio and feature services and all sorts of things, um, you know, capacity building, business models, um, a range of different things with developing country media. And so that's where I sort of forged the first sort of five years of my career. And it's kind of lasted in a way the ethos that Panos had, which was that, you know, the people most affected by change, most affected by the forces of um, globalization or whatever are the ones that should be placed at the center of reporting. Their voices should inform it. Their lived experience should inform it. Um, you know, media media should be serving that sort of public interest angle. That's that's sort of remained all the way through in what I'm doing, even though now I'm focusing much more on, for example, the UK or Europe. Um, after that, I went to work in the States for a little bit. I worked for a human rights organization called Witness. So I worked um, on human rights advocacy and ran what was at the time something a bit like the YouTube for human rights. So I had a again slightly different angle much more inside the human rights community and thinking how it thinks about communication and, and so on and then i um i moved on to open society not long after that um where i worked in the media program uh which then became the program on independent journalism as it is today and so was a grant maker um so i sat on different sides of the table um you know different views on it and in in a sense i think that's that's sort of put me where I am now, where I, I see myself really in a sort of bridge role between different kinds of thinking, different kinds of communities, helping people come together and try and cross divides to be able to address challenges that, that need kind of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary approaches to, to address them. Great. Sort of the issue, you know, we've chosen as a topic, but obviously, you know, given your background, we could talk about all sorts of things, was just that kind of question of philanthropy and journalism, both sort of journalism as a tool for furthering kind of philanthropic or social goals, but also the the increasing focus there is on philanthropy as a mechanism for funding kind of broader public interest journalism or kind of traditional news media you know have in your recent experience have you, do you think it is something that's become more of a focus for the kind of philanthropic and foundation world to to think about journalism as a focus for their work and, and why do you think that might be if so yes in short yes definitely it's um you know there's always been a, a core of funders working in particularly the us and uk and to some extent in europe that are focused on journalism as a uh, as an as something that they fund as an end in itself, you know they they um, the means through which or the kind of paradigm through which they've done it has, has changed over time, or they might express it differently. Um, but broadly speaking, there's a, there's like a sort of handful of foundations, um, particularly that have that have thought of this Knight Foundation in the US um, and and ones like that that are just sort of stimulated in its wake. Um, open Society, obviously. Um, and a sort of cluster of others um, that, and they've always, uh, in a sense, kind of been loyal to that field, and they've seen the field in evolve over many, many years, and they've supported it in lots of different ways. What's new, I think, is that although lots of other foundations have always looked to the media in one sense or another, they've always looked to it. You know, ones that have, for example, a thematic goal, or um, they're working with a particular um, you know, population or minority or uh, a region or whatever, they've always thought about um, funding media as somehow, uh, you know, an instrument. Like you say, it's sort of to to achieve their goals. It's to it's subordinate to their thematic goals, their whatever sort of mission they might have. Um, and so that I think is what's shifting. So what, there's a greater appreciation that. You know, for a long time, obviously, media held itself very, very much apart from civil society. I think what's what's happened is in the last three, four years, with particularly the closing space phenomenon, um, what's shifted is that people on the civil society side have seen that actually they they need the media, and the media is more than just a vehicle for their advocacy messages or whatever. It's actually something that's intrinsic to the fabric of civil society. How how people communicate, how you know what is real and what is not and those sorts of things and at the same time media um have been going through so much turmoil sort of economically uh 
structurally, uh, also in lots of places, obviously, in, in respect of press freedom challenges and other kinds of challenges, that they have had to broaden out how they think of who their allies are and where they look for resources and those sorts of things. And so it's forcing a wider range of media than was true before to look at sort of philanthropy as a source. And so that means there's a sort of cycle, you know, organizations are approaching philanthropic entities saying, you know, will you support us? Those entities aren't experienced in thinking about how to support journalism except as an instrument. And so there's a sort of... Uh, what you could say is a, a, there has been a little bit of a mismatch or skills gap, but that's beginning to be closed. I think you know as more and more foundations understand better how um, how to think about sporting media as an end in themselves rather than as a as a vehicle for achieving other goals. Hmm. And yeah, you, you sort of highlight there the the shift from seeing um, journalism in instrumental terms as you know something that you could uh, do to further your your existing um, narrow mission or kind of se- separate mission, having kind of non profit um, newsroom that might be specifically around human rights or environmental things as a way of getting stories that might otherwise be missed out to the the mainstream media or kind of bypassing that mainstream media. Where in that shift to thinking more about the kind of inherent benefits of journalism journalism as a public good does does that still at the moment look a bit like organizations looking to particular types of of news or journalism so sort of you know online journalism that that almost crosses over into advocacy or or kind of local or sort of investigative or public interest journalism or or is there has anybody kind of gone the whole hog and and is funding stuff that looks very much like just traditional paid for journalism on the basis that it needs philanthropic help and that is justifiable as a public good i think it's a it's a spectrum you know as with anything and this is you know as you know there's there's a huge variety of funders there's a huge variety of um news and media and journalism organizations um and um you know i always i kind of I think it's kind of interesting, you know, when you look at um, the the director of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, Rasmus Kleist Nielsen, um, on his blog, he um, he posted a sort of draft chapter about media economics. It's in, it's going to be in this uh, later this year. It's probably it's going to be published in a final version in the Sage Handbook of Journalism Studies. He touches on this issue of philanthropy and journalism. And he sort of says, well, obviously it's there, but globally it represents, I forget exactly what the percentage is. I think it's either 1% or 2% of global revenue, you know, at the point that he was writing, which is last year, um, for journalism. And the rest comes from other sorts of activities, commercial revenue and all sorts of different things. So he was trying to put it in perspective as to, as a global influence over the media in terms of the quantity of money that's spent on, you know, or the revenue that, that media derive from uh, philanthropy, it's actually pretty low in global terms. But obviously, when you then start to think about the types of journalism that are being supported, which obviously foundations with, you know, mission driven organizations will gravitate towards things that match that public, like you say, public interest journalism and, and so on. Um, things that address minorities or address imbalances in, uh, public debate or, or so on. So I think you know, it is it is an interesting um, thing to look into to sort of work out the degree to which they're they're beginning to shift towards thinking of it more just as a general public good that needs to be supported in itself. I think it's a journey for every every foundation. You know, one foundation I interviewed in the Netherlands said that they had started out funding what they described as instrumentally and now funded in a much more sort of holistic and ecosystem way, uh, you know, over a period of experience and, you know, making this kind of uh, grant and that kind of grant and then dialoguing with other foundations and so on. But they'd sort of, they transitioned in a way to to thinking much more at the other end of the spectrum. I think lots of foundations are sort of going to go through that. Um, Thinking particularly, I mean, you can think of ones like place-based foundations, you know, ones that naturally think about, ecosystems of actors in a particular place i think they're they're very naturally placed to think directly in that way you know how do media fit into that ecosystem and infrastructure you know as part of the environment and fabric not as something separate to it and i think you know that's lots of different types of funders will will eventually go through that thinking 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I think you, uh, the sort of place-based motivation um, seems like the most natural one because I think in what you're saying there, there's a an, an obvious question that that occurs, which is you know as as you go from that shift of funding instrumentally to funding more on a kind of broad-based um, uh, rationale about kind of the the public good um, that can be that we got through journalism, it does raise a question of the extent to which funders that have any cause-based element or thematic focus can genuinely do that even if they think they want to actually what they're bringing to the table either explicitly or implicitly is this whole set of of kind of biases and assumptions about which issues they think are important how how do you think you can kind of square that with editorial independence on the part of of a news organization which surely is pretty fundamental it's key it's the linchpin of everything um in this area i think um you know what i so i wrote a a, a paper, like a 30, 40 page paper for the Ariadne, um, Ariadne network of, um, funders, which is a European network, um, probably known quite well to your listeners and interlocutors. And, um, it was an introduction to funding journalism and media. And what, what was interesting is, so that was based on interviews with, uh, donors who were quite experienced at dealing with media and have been for, you know, you know, five, 10, 15 years or longer, even in some cases. Um, but then written and framed for journal, uh, for donors who are trying, who are sort of new to or curious about journalism, new media grant making. So it really was trying to derive the sort of, I don't know, life lessons from, um, uh, you know, from more experienced donors who are specialized in dealing with media and sort of have, have got the battle scars and everything else and have, and have come to a sort of, a more or less settled way of thinking in some respects um, and to those who are a bit more all over the map if you like so the thing that all of them emphasized was this issue around independence and so you know there are there are guidelines out there the American Press Institute I think it was um, a year or two ago had a, a very US focused process around this but it was you know a lot of the outputs of it are really useful and they produced guidelines for funders for non-profit newsrooms and also for for-profit newsrooms um, on how to manage these kinds of conversations and relationships, um, which I think was a really valuable thing to do because what it did was it brought together sort of multi-stakeholder groups, you know, funders, academics, journalists, et cetera, et cetera, to try and discuss what are the core ethical frameworks that you need to think about when you are either contemplating asking for funding from a funder and what, you know, what you should you, what sort of red lines, if I can use red lines without immediately making everyone think of Brexit, um, uh, what are the red lines that you need to lay down in order to say, well, you know, this is okay, but actually if you want to cross this, we can't accept your funding. And likewise, how do funders um, mitigate the power dynamic with newsrooms that might not be used to asking for uh, philanthropic money used to in, you know uh, interfacing with donors um in this way you know they don't they don't necessarily have the language you know media development groups you know cso's that work to support the media um are much more experienced at that they know how to talk donor language they know how to talk about impact frameworks and things like that Journalism organizations, by and large, don't. They often don't have a development person that deals with these sort of kinds of things. So, you know, there's a lot of translation and bridge building that needs to happen and some sort of laying down of some uh, tram lines that help people then go towards the right kinds of conversations. Um, so I think that's that's something that, that has been done in some settings. The report that I wrote tried to do some of that. There are other reports and other guidelines that people are trying to think about as well. I think, yeah, it's really interesting because I think it, it's really good to hear that they've kind of set it out in, in such a structured way because I think there are, you know, there's a sort of caricatured version you could come up with, which is essentially a donor coming in and saying, I want you to write stories about pandas or whatever because that's our cause. But I, I think it's less likely to be that and it's more likely to be as funders and, you know, individual philanthropists and foundations move into this space in in their the kind of need to, the desire and the need to compete for that funding amongst news organizations will lead them to shape their editorial line to what they either know or think funders are likely to go for and and so it's not even necessarily the funders 
doing it explicitly it's just a kind of uh you know an artifact of who they are and the the fact that they're the ones with resources so um you know it, it is going to be difficult to manage i think i think that's right i think that you know there is and, and there is work that's been done um that you know academic and gray literature that that is looking at this exact issue you know, there are some who are who've been pretty hawkish about it and sort of said, you know, foundations distort the markets. Um, they're not democratically accountable. Um, you know, they're incentivizing coverage of topics that are uh, their own pet issues. And therefore, you know, media only has a certain amount of bandwidth to cover a certain amount of things. There's only a certain amount of, atten- uh, of attention. And so if you if you incentivize media to cover topic X with sort of reporting grants or whatever, then you're taking away some of media's independence. So there are some who think at that end of the spectrum. There are others who just think, um, you know, who are, who are sort of, you know, there are gradations of thinking between there and the other end, which is, well, you know, if people want to apply for that money, they will apply for that money. Um, you know, it's just a market. Um, and it's just another source of revenue and income. And so I think, you know, there are, there are gradations around it, but I think it's important to know that there are people, you know, Anya Schifrin of Columbia, um, University, the School of International Public Affairs. She and, uh, colleagues did some, you know, they've done a series of reports that look at some of these things. They've looked at startups in the developing world. They've looked at foundation funding. And they've, you know, teased out some of these dynamics, um, between, for example, northern donors and developing world newsrooms. And there is, there is a power dynamic. There is a certain distortion. Um, you know, and it, it, I think the only way to really address it is to, you know, to talk about it, you know, and, and engage and to, to sort of, to document, to use evidence, you know, there's, um, there's a recent series of articles by um, Martin Scott, Mel Bunce, and Kate Wright looking at um, international humanitarian journalism, things like Irin News and things like that, and the funders who engage in that kind of reporting. And, you know, they've, I talked with them recently, and they were sort of saying, well, they, they started by looking at um, the humanitarian end of the journalism, but then very quickly got into lots of questions being raised about the relationship between the donors and the journalism. And so, you know, they're, they're looking at it and they're sort of interested in, you know, helping, um, contribute to the thinking and literature. And I think this is, it's something that's sort of overdue in a way. Um, and as more and more foundations get involved in it, I think the more, you know, it's more and more important that we do have, you know, in a sense, a proper debate about, you know, what's appropriate, what's not, um, you know, what the field itself, the journalism field itself wants and what its parameters and requirements are, as well as what donors think and need. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, I think it's good. I think it's good to have debate and good to have scrutiny, um, you know, because there is a definite power dynamic and also there's a, on the side of the media at the moment, it is vulnerable. It's precarious to different places. And that leads to people having to make very difficult decisions sometimes, you know, and so you do, you do want them to, you know, it's the onus is on donors to, uh, I think provide journalists, journalism organizations with as much of the power as possible, you know? Yeah. And and I guess that question about power dynamics and an agency in philanthropies is not specific to to the question of funding journalism or news it's a sort of broader question that's going on um, and it strikes me one one of the you know potential avenues for solving or redressing that power balance imbalance to some extent is often said to be you know to switch from a model where you're dependent on you know an individual large funder or a group of large funders be they philanthropists or foundations to a model where you are attempting to get a much sort of broader base of smaller donations and it seems like that that's something we've seen in the context of journalism as well because obviously you know big big examples like um the guardian you know going out and asking for voluntary donations which has been very successful as far as i understand and ProPublica in the u.s as well kind of tapping into quite a large range of smaller donations you know what what's your your take on those two different potential avenues for trying to use philanthropy to to fund news um i mean in the u.s it's 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 a different situation because they you know um 
in a sort of you know in a in a nutshell, it's it's easier for foundations to give money to um, journalism there uh, because of legal and regulatory reasons. So we don't have that in the UK um, yet. Although uh, this this issue of sort of charitable status of journalism is now firmly on the agenda. Um, the, the recent Cairn Cross review issued a report in which, you know, they took soundings from wide range of industry, all sorts of players, lo- you know, it was about local news fundamentally. But one of the key recommendations that came out of it, and, you know, Dame Francis Cairn Cross noted in the report that actually the widest support and the most diverse support for any particular policy intervention that she could have recommended was around making journalism or making the advancement of journalism uh, and giving it charitable status. Uh, that was that was a sort of key thing that came in from a really wide range of contributors to her review and call for evidence. So, uh, and the government responded and, and, and sort of agreed, which is a really huge shift, um, given that this is something that's come up, you know, the Lord's, uh, um, advised it communications committee um, about seven, eight years ago, you know, around the time of Leveson, this was all again um, discussed. And so, people, you know, and, and organizations like Full Fact and the Bureau for Investigative Journalism have had real struggles to get recognized as, as sort of, you know, journalism as being charitable and then be able to take charitable status. So, you know, that's, that's a structural problem that limits and frustrates actually quite a lot of, I think, pent-up philanthropic interest in supporting the development of journalism in the UK specifically, but it's also okay, it's the case in Germany as well, um, where they have uh, a similar sort of debate going on on about what's called Gemeinnützigkeit, um, you know, public benefit um, journalism. So, you know, it's come up in Australia, it's come up in Canada. Um, so, you know, these, these sorts of issues where the structural problems of not being able to give money to journalism that is, that is manifestly a public benefit, public interest is, you know, it's something that's slowly, I think, being addressed and hopefully will be resolved and, you know, can, can spread wider and wider. The, um, the thing about revenue diversity is a different question. Um, and, you know, there's, it's funny, I, you know, some of the stuff I'm doing is obviously working on this and, you know, you read evidence, some of which says, you know, revenue diversity is really important, but also it's incredibly hard. Um, and it re- requires a lot of um, uh, discipline, a lot of work. Um, you know, obviously it's easier to get money from, you know, a major donor. Um, you know, the, the sort of cost benefit of, of that is uh, different than having to go to and service lots and lots of individual donors and but then also the, the paradigm is different so you know you one of the huge ideas that's kind of abroad in journalism at the moment is um membership so you know you've talked about the guardian um you know, i think they've they've got some interesting things happening they've had you know experiments with membership and opening up the guardian's building over a weekend having open weekends and things like that they had a cafe for a while you know all sorts of different things they've tried out and experiments like that are happening throughout the world you know developing worlds uh, repressive environments you know uk wherever um and you know lots and lots of people are trying out different ways of generating different forms of income um you know live events is one that sort of spiked enormously. It sort of, it, they started really in California with pop-up magazine and um, has spread to lots of different places. You know, uh, Paris has got one live magazine. There's some in Germany, Austria, here, there, and everywhere. Um, and ultimately, I, you know, I think what people are finding is this is one of the routes to to addressing the, you know, what what some are diagnosing as a, a gap in trust or a fall in trust in journalism, this closer relationship with audiences, with supporters, with members, feeding into, you know, a stronger relationship with, uh, on a financial level, but also on a sort of moral or a sort of solidarity level um, and an ethos level. So, you know, there are examples of that emerging. The correspondent in the Netherlands is the one that's always sort of cited. Um, you know, they decided not to run adverts. They had a closed platform, password protected, with no adverts, no trackers. 
Um, the journalists nominally, what they were doing was they were called conversation leaders and they would collaborate with, they would publish an open notebook of what they were thinking about and issues they were talking about. Um, and their readers and subscribers, members could uh, participate and could suggest things. They could give leads. They could contribute. And this, this sort of model is something that has been tried in lots of different ways. The Guardian tried it before when they did open journalism under Alan Rosberger. Um, Paul Lewis was a champion of it, you know, a few years back. Um, and so, you know, the, these things are sort of beginning to come together. The, the, this agenda of like a greater connection with greater engagement with audiences and citizens, finding ways to pay for that and turn that relationship into a, a sort of, you know, signal of support, not just as a signal of sort of subscription or value. And then, um, helping that sustain core sort of public interest reporting for one kind or another. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's, that's one of the interesting trends. That's to me feels like one of the, the sort of interesting thing about the, the reader supported journalism in that way, where it genuinely does change the nature of the journalism that's produced. It's not just a sort of pledge drive, the sort of NPR model or, um, you know, it's sort of charitable. Model. Yeah beyond that it's kind of you know we are a community we believe in what we're doing we want to participate and contribute to it and we want to translate that into you know something beyond i think it's absolutely fascinating because there's like i absolutely agree that the idea that you not just ask people for money but get them sort of more involved in a longer term sense of membership of a community with kind of you know shared goals and, and interests has potentially huge benefits i suppose the the flip side and i, I say this as somebody who's sort of married to a, a journalist who now teaches journalism when we've talked about this one of the the challenges that she's raised is that it's absolutely fine and in, in the case of certain forms of journalism you know investigative journalism public interest journalism that, that has historically struggled to be able to kind of wash its own face actually that sort of money if you're able to find a sufficient audience for it who will support it on that basis then you can yeah. do it and that's great i guess yeah. the the danger is does it potentially if if it happens at a much greater scale lead to a sort of fragmentation where you can make any form of journalism viable because you can find a sufficient audience for it and what gets left behind is that kind of broader journalism that keeps us in some sort of shared national conversation which you know if we're, we're all off and able to go and choose our own news sources and sort of identify with a shared community that's great but we already sort of have seen some of the downsides of that online as we're able to kind of choose our own communities and hive off the bits that we don't like do you you know do, do you think there is any long-term risk of of that happening I don't know, you have to ask, you know a more intelligent person than me. Um, I mean, you know, there are you know, going back to Rasmus Feisen, one of the things that he's been very vocal about recently is actually pushing back on the idea of filter bubbles. Um, for example, he's sort of said the evidence doesn't support that. The evidence actually supports in the settings that he's he and his colleagues at, at the Reuters Institute and other other researchers are studying, actually people's exposure to a diversity of news has increased. Um, so, you know, and obviously there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but as, as a broad conclusion from a sort of unbelievably reputable researcher, I would, you know, I would take that really seriously. Um, you know, he even wrote, uh, wrote a, a post, I think it was on Neiman Lab, which was where he talked about um, media change deniers a bit like climate change deniers, you know, people who are sort of holding to this kind of this view that actually, you know, the sky is falling in um, and that the evidence doesn't necessarily support it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think obviously, you know, uh, one of the things that's gaining purchase now, you know, and I, I'm, guess, I'm guessing we may come to it is the dreaded S word, um, sustainability, which, you know, for a few years now has been the sort of, you know, the, the standard words to kind of trot out to say, well, you know, are you thinking about sustainability? How is this sustainable, etc. And I think what's, what's shifting, hopefully, you know, uh, you know, when I was at OSF, we went through a phase where, you know, from, from people sort of 
if you like, raising an eyebrow at the word resilience to by the time I left, resilience was in every single proposal and every single strategy um, to now thinking about things like viability um, and viability being thought about as a, you know, as this, you know, how are organizations viable um, economically, financially, socially, legally, politically, all of those different dimensions. And so I think, you know, there is this, um, this shift in thinking, um, which I think then, I don't know, I think those are the sorts of things that, that are preoccupying people at the moment, you know, the broader issues about, you know, whether this is going to long-term skew public debate, you can't legislate for that. You can't, you know, that's going to be sorted out by, by a far larger range of forces than, than we can, any of us can possibly have any agency over. It's such a complex environment. Um, and, you know, it's such a hyper-mediatized environment as well. You know, the means through which things are distributed, we don't control it. It's controlled by, you know, major tech platforms and corporations that have incentives that are larger than we can imagine. Um, so I think it's, you know, we're in a different, I don't know, I don't think it's possible to, you know, it's not really the role of the, the media to, to sort of ensure those conversations are happening. It's mm. of the effects of having media. I guess I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I no, just... I mean, and it, there is a danger of idealizing the past as soon as as sort of mm. you know transformative change comes around. Just think, oh, actually, you know, what will be lost? Well, you know, why was the change happening in the first place? Probably because there was something not working. Um, it does. What you were saying there just led me um, on to think of a, another thing I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, is is there something? potentially you know an interesting question about what the end goal of philanthropic support for the media is because i mean again it's a broader question with philanthropy in the round which is you know are are you seeing it as a sort of short-term vehicle to catalyze change or to get you to some different future that is sustainable or is, is that the kind of the new normal that you fund these things through philanthropic means and i guess particularly for news media and journalism it feels particularly acute because you know historically they were funded through people paying for them and through advertising revenues and that's dried up so that's why we're kind of talking about it but is the future going to be all about philanthropic funding or is this just a temporary uh, mechanism to get somewhere else and if so you know what what might that be well i think it's a spectrum it depends where you're talking about if you're talking about you know uk you know stable democracies with you know broad diverse news markets or whatever you know i think you're probably talking more about funding in the shorter term you know like stimulus catalytic funding which enables transformation of you know legacy players and you know people who are finding it difficult to access you know money to to do that kind of transformation or new thinking or where the market you know investors don't necessarily think you know they're they're not providing money for if you like public interest oriented innovative journalism or innovative modes of producing quality information whatever you want to call it um so if you've got those kinds of environments that's that's one thing and so you know your incentives and the ways in which you would support that are, are are different um if you're thinking about places where i don't know central and eastern europe where there's sort of endemic systemic media capture where you know media is uh you know owned by the cronies of governments or is you know legislated against or shut down willfully or you know, wantonly or you know all of those challenges that they face um and that's that's a phenomenon that's growing worldwide um then it's a different kind of challenge um you know, the nature of the funding, the approach to it, possibly even the vehicle, vehicle through which it's made might be different. When you're talking about repressive environments, it's a, yet another model. When you're talking about environments where there's a massive um, gap of infrastructure, um, it, also in the enabling environment, you know, media, legal, defense, things like that, um, or whether there are much more first-order challenges like freedom of expression or safety of journalists, um, Again, different kind of approach. So, you know, all of those are going to call for different kinds of local, locally driven, sensitive to context kinds of funding. 
Um, and they're all going to be on different kinds of timelines and different kinds of assumptions. And I think that that's the thing that's um, interesting because there are lots of, in a way, what that does is offer lots of different avenues and opportunities for different kinds of funders to think about what they want to contribute to and whom they need to work with to make that happen. You know, in other places, it might be, you know, funding FOI, or it might be funding open data, or it might be funding the, the sort of things that journalists would make use of. Um, you know, I was thinking, I was looking last night at Century, which has been around for ages, actually, since, you know, George Clooney founded it with uh, John Prendergast. It was sort of came out of the whole Darfur um, crisis. And so I was looking at it originally when I was working in sort of human rights video advocacy, if you like. And it's lasted that sort of that thinking. Um, and what they've ended up as is a sort of forensic investigators, lawyers, etc. And they build investigations and then they release that to journalists to then be able to, so journalists can take and use and sort of attest and work out what they do with that data. Um, you know, so there are, I think one of the functions of the sort of disaggregation means that there are lots more places in the, in the sort of value chain of journalism, if you want to call it that, where people can contribute. But it also means there are lots more vulnerable places where philanthropy will need to step in to help, I think, um, you know, to bolster things because there are many more points of vulnerability. And, you know, just like in other parts of civil society, you know, people are having to think about new challenges. There are many more fronts. It's much more, you know, it's whatever, you know, whatever, you know, four dimensional chess or whatever, all of that sort of stuff. You're having to think on so many more dimensions. You know, media independence, for example, used to be in some sense quite linear and quite graspable. You know, were they being interfered with? Were they facing physical threats? You know, were they being sold paper? to print, you know, did somebody come and smash up the printing presses? Uh, did somebody come and take over the broadcast studio? Was the transmitter vulnerable? All of those sorts of things that were, in a sense, it was physical infrastructure that was, it was predictable. Whereas now there are so many different dimensions on which media independence can be compromised or damaged, you know, payment processes, uh, hosting providers, um, advertising networks, all kinds of different dimensions that are sort of, you know, many orders more difficult and complex for small independent media to deal with and for donors without expertise of that to deal with and also a massively overwhelmed, I would say, probably digital rights sector to push back on everywhere. So, you know, this is why I think we need, and lots of people are working towards this sort of much more transdisciplinary approach you know we're all in it together if i can borrow that <laughs> phrase. that tainted phrase yeah. yes tainted phrase <laughs> yeah it's really interesting as you say it's kind of actually it's good to spell out the way in which it's much more you know it's you have to think about it in a much more sophisticated way because actually the kind of if you say philanthropy and journalism the obvious the obvious uh you know the mental image that everybody goes to is is kind of jeff bezos buying the washington post or something and that's obviously one form of it but you know at, at a totally different part of the value chain or just a totally different scale as you say things like just making um kind of investigations viable or providing open data or, or these sorts of things or you know the work or outfits like bellingcat are doing although obviously i realize you know, people have different views of of that is you know seems like part of the same mix but you know very a very different philanthropic motivation um would be brought to the table if that's what you were were looking at so um yeah, I think it's really interesting. One thing I, I wanted to ask about actually is, um, you know, the 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 benefit of philanthropic funding of journalism is obviously, you know, partly the kind of public interest that comes through its its role in society, you know, scrutiny and providing kind of a check and balance on uh, government. But but also there is, you know, the another way in which it provides scrutiny is it is in philanthropy itself and at the moment there is quite a lot more scrutiny of philanthropy and its sort of role within democracy and the role it plays with respect to inequality do you do you think that is you know potentially a selling point to philanthropists you know on the on the basis that like look if you want to really address these problems and and kind of shore up the legitimacy of philanthropy funding journalism as a as a check on you know your own power would be a good thing or do you think it's actually going to be something that makes it more difficult 
um, you know, for for news outfits maybe who have got philanthropic funding because they will feel like there are some topics that they're not really allowed to go near. I don't know. I think, it, you know, the, the majority of donors that I've interacted with are very thoughtful about this. You know, even ones that don't traditionally fund are very, very thoughtful and wary about this issue. They're also, you know, you know, they're, they're on both sides, both the sort of power of philanthropy more generally and about the specific issues around interaction with journalism and how they can support it without compromising its independence, without uh, railroading it into a particular direction. So I, you know, I think I think that's, you know, among the individuals within the philanthropic structure structures that I, you know, interacted with, they're super thoughtful, extremely aware of the the uh, potential pitfalls and so on. You know, whether whether that translates into, you know, when that, you know, when you're then within a broader philanthropic kind of philanthro-bureaucratic structure where you're having to justify why you're doing it, you know, um, is kind of, um, uh, you know, is a different question. I think, you know, that plays out in different institutions in different ways. Um, what I think is definitely abroad in the field more generally is, you know, for example, you can see it, you know, the tendrils of it in things like participatory grant making. Um, you know the the power shift that is um, debated in that in that method. Um, you know the grant craft guide and and the sort of way in which that came came to into being was really interesting last year. And I think that those kinds of debates actually have a lot to help and inform. Yeah, I, I think it, what, what is different. What it's what it's. I don't know what am I trying to say. I think that just. There are certain things about media funding and journalism funding that I think are specific to that particular mode of funding. But at the same time, there are broader trends within philanthropy itself, which are trying to address some of those questions about legitimacy and power and decision making and so on. But I think also need to be factored in to the way in which philanthropy relates to journalism. And so I think it's... Um, you know, I wouldn't want to, I don't think that there should be a particular exceptionalism about the philanthropy journalism relationship in that sense that, that means that, you know, it shouldn't be influenced by other thinking within philanthropy. It should be part of the debate of how journalism gets funded. Um, and I think that that, having that openly and, you know, on a bedrock of sort of, you know, the, these kind of key principles like, you know, absolute commitment to editorial independence, um, where possible using you know, I think you know, there are, in the report I wrote, you know, I tried to kind of, you know, give a sort of taxonomy of the different ways in which funders can, can sort of enable that, you know, through pooled funding. There's things like the Civitatis Fund um, uh, in, in Europe that, you know, I think 17, 16, 17 different European funders are involved in. Um, there are um, other kinds of mechanisms, innovation funds or, you know, things that allow... A measure of distance there's journalism funds also european fund which um, allows funders to put in and then um sort of black boxes that money for investigative journalism and and you know so there are there are mechanisms that donors can participate in um and i know that there are some being discussed at a larger scale a sort of international scale at the moment among different kinds of donors to support the media that would give donors a a, a sort of arm's length relationship they'd be able to contribute to strategic goals around funds they'd be able to contribute funds to it but these these would then be independently administered or you know in, uh, administered by experts and, and then give give a different relationship with the field they're contributing but they're not they're not interfering in it in a sense and that would then i think unlock some of these issues around um you know freedom to scrutinize and, and so on i think it's important that you know it's another force in society that, as as I said, you know, Anya Schifrin, you know, Bunce and Wright and um, and uh, Scott have looked into in their papers, and, and many others are beginning to too. Rodney Benson in the US. So you know, there's I I think it's absolutely right to do that. Great, and that that sort of brings us fairly neatly to close. But I mean, just as a sort of final thought, what you know, what would you like to to see happen, either kind of broadly or specifically in the UK? To, to really kind of move this debate forward to where to where you think it needs to go. 
gosh. <laughs> all right. Um, so I, I, all right. I, I think there are different things, and obviously this. So if talking about the UK, I think that that's one specific thing. Um, I think Ken Cross Review provided a really good springboard, actually, in, in some ways. You know, it was there are bits of it that you can question, and some people did. Um, but I think what it came out with was some very concrete things. It, I think it coalesced the idea, you know, as much as we in our sort of, you know, specialist bubbles think that everyone knows what public interest journalism is. Um, I think what it did um, was to build some heft around that idea. What is public interest journalism and why might you want to support it? Um, why is it under threat? So I think that pub, we need a public debate around that. And, you know, foundations are a really key part of that i think you know nick perks at uh, roundtree did an interesting interview for the central european university where he talked about something that i also also think is an issue um where he sort of said well it's not that there's a lack of journalism it's not that there's a lack of media organizations what's lacking is the civil society infrastructure that supports the media that's something that in developing countries, you know, organizations like Article 19, like Panos, like Internews, uh, you know, other European ones like Free Press Unlimited or International Media Support or others have worked on for decades. You know, they've supported, you know, organizations that support, uh, you know, media law, freedom of expression, freedom of information, all kinds of things that are part of the, the, the sort of fabric of quality information, checks and balances, free flow of information, all those sorts of things, the enabling environment. We don't have that in the UK. So where's that going to come from? And I think that that's a question that um, funders in the UK could engage with very productively. And there's already a sort of layer of organizations all based in the UK, actually, like those ones I mentioned, that have deep experience in thinking about these issues. So, you know, it's not like we're starting from zero, but, you know, that's, that's important. I think the charitable status thing is really key issue and i think the voice of uh, foundations and the journalism sector is going to be really important you know um talking to the the commission charity commission about that i'm sure there'll be consultations and things like that coming up about that and then you know i think unlocking um things like that Cairn cross also proposed an innovation fund maybe that's a route um through which philanthropic money can be rooted into sort of UK, you know, with with the sort of mission-driven attitude of uh, increasing the diversity of the sector, whether that's gender diversity, um, diversity among different communities, diversity of perspective, class, so on, all things that we know are systemic issues within the industry in the UK. Um, but, you know, there are, there are avenues that are beginning to open up that are perhaps going to enable us to do this more structurally in the UK. When it comes to Europe, there's, uh, you know, hopefully good, good things happening. There's this, um, you know, philanthropy advocacy agenda emerging, I think, next week, which is looking more at things like single market for philanthropy, um, which I think would be an interesting development, which would then really push back on some of the challenges of, like, if you're based in Germany and you want to fund in Hungary or Poland, Perhaps that'll be a route to, to doing that. And then in international settings, there are, there are plenty of thinkers who are doing really interesting work. There are, you know, people who are trying to stimulate the environment in Latin America. There's, um, the Knight Center in Texas, there's Sembra Media, um, that have done some really good research on, you know, how to stimulate and strengthen journalism in Latin America. Um, Asia, there's all sorts of stuff happening around media startups that are public interest ones. Middle East, there are things happening. You know, there are initiatives popping up all the time across different parts of Africa, um, Francophone and Anglophone. So I think it's, you know, there's never in a way been a better time for people to kind of look up, you know, find interested and solid parties who are doing, you know, evidence-based work, academic work, or, or sort of grey literature type work. And, you know, to to, to sort of find interesting things that they can support. Um, you know, I think that's, that's really the thing that doing this work over the last three, four years, I think has really uh, woken me up to. But actually, now, you know, now really is the time when, when you're getting involved, there are avenues to, for almost any kind of interest and philanthropic approach. You know, it's a really interesting time. I think the other thing in the UK and, and in emerging in other places that's really interesting is um, this, uh, 
you know, in the past, like, you know, like we've talked about, funders, civil society would want to sort of influence the media to cover topics that were of interest to them. What's, you know, what then happened was that more and more kind of um, people would start, you know, I mentioned the century, for example, you know, people would build structures that would then provide quality information to the media. Um, or, you know, even organizations like Global Witness would hire in journalists, investigative journalists to do investigations under the rubric that they have. Um, what's, what's been a new, you know, reasonably new trend is that actually, um, civil society organizations or funders funding thematic newsrooms, you know, we talked a little bit about this, but I think, you know, I think it's, it's an emerging trend which does address some of these public interest news gaps. Um, you know, Humanity United Funds, for example, the Modern Slavery Unit in the Guardian, um, and that works across the whole Guardian as a sort of editorial unit that's under um, a journalist called uh, Annie Kelly. Um, you've got then, um, so that's inside a newspaper. Then you've got a model like what the Tax Justice Network did with Finance Uncovered. They incubated um, Finance Uncovered and then made it an independent organization, and that is a uh, an investigative journalism organization that looks at illicit finance around the world. And they do a mixture of sort of reporting and training and, and those kinds of things. Um, so it's a standalone organization. And then you've got another model, uh, which is what Greenpeace has done, which is they had an internal investigative and a reporting unit called, initially I think it was called Energy Desk, and now it's called Unearthed. Um, and that is wholly owned by Greenpeace. So it's within Greenpeace itself it's on a greenpeace url but it's entirely independent of greenpeace editorially but it's within the sort of environmental coverage tram lines right so that's i think one intro interesting trend there's another newsroom called transparentum which looks at sort of supply chain issues if i'm not mistaken um you know and there are others sort of popping up um follow the money in the netherlands and, and so on um so I think that's that's an interesting trend that donors and you know journalists should be looking at and discussing and debating and uh, and and, observe, and sort of watching closely because I think that's one model that's that's emerged that is you know not everyone's comfortable with it and you know there are some issues that you know some people uh, um, have raised they feel it's you know it, it's not uh, um, it's not pure journalism or whatever that means anymore. But, you know, I think those debates are beginning to abate and people are thinking really, you know, practically about what, what are these models adding to the journalism mix. And then you've got, um, I think, another really, really interesting trend in the UK particularly, which funders like, um, actually, you know, the Google DNI, which I worked on for one round, and uh, Luminate, which was formerly part of the Omidyar network, what uh, was part of the Omidyar network and is now a standalone uh, funder within that. Um, they funded cooperatives. So there are cooperatives, you know, cooperatives have been in, in, in news and journalism for quite a long time. Um, what's it? Uh, TAZ in Germany is a, a legit cooperative newspaper. Got lots of news cooperatives in, in uh, Greece um, for obvious reasons because their entire industry collapsed. Um, but uh, they are uh, in the UK as well. Somebody called Dave Boyle wrote a really good paper a few years back about cooperatives and news. Um, for Cooperatives UK, and you've got here in the UK, you've got the Ferret in Scotland, which is a really, you know, going great guns, really fascinating um, cooperative model, the, uh, the Bristol Cable, and you've got others, uh, I think the Manchester Meteor, if I'm not mistaken. Um, then there's others emerging in lots of other places. So I think um, there's an investigative one in, in Belgium called Apache, um, and uh, Madamassa in Egypt. So, you know, that, that sort of model, which again is one of these ones that allows for sort of cooperative ownership by the journalists involved, uh, often by readers or, you know, members of community, has different ways of governing, um, is another way that people are trying to bring some balance and trust back into those relationships and also some measure of defense against outside forces, you know, forces of pressure, solidarity. Um, through sort of cooperative ownership and funding of media is also really interesting. So, you know, those those are also areas I think people should be paying really, really strong attention to. Great. 
Well, thanks ever so much for for coming on the podcast. We we had to do do a bit of work to get this arranged, but we got there in the end. So I'm really grateful for it. And it's you know it's been a really interesting conversation. I'll be yeah really interested to see where all of this stuff goes next. Likewise, thanks for having me. Great. Well, thanks again to Samir for taking the time to come on the podcast. As I said, it took us a couple of goes to to get it to work for various reasons, but I'm really glad that he was able to do it because it's a fascinating topic, I think, and you know one that I hope to to come back to in the future. Um, if you're interested in some of the things Sammy was talking about, I'll try and put show notes to uh, links in the show notes to as many as possible. Although he obviously mentioned a lot of things, <laughs> so I might not catch all of them. Um, if there are any missing, feel free to drop me a line or kind of message me on Twitter, and I will try and uh, find relevant references and links for you. Um, if you're more broadly interested in the kinds of things we were talking about, issues around philanthropy, power, inequality, and that kind of thing, um, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, where I talk about a lot of the, the same sorts of issues, only usually with kind of added puns and gifs, um, at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Um, if you have ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, uh, drop me an email at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, give us some favourable reviews on iTunes and Spotify and wherever. Uh, and other than that, I will see you next time. Okay, bye!